I was telling somebody like uh, the other day, like um, I was like, uh, I need to figure out a way like incorporating like the 140 people who uh, like help sponsor the first book. So I was like just leaking up the redesign, but I was going to do like the brick by brick thing for one of the, like, mm-hmm. when they're walk- the first opening scene when they're like walking past that wall, just everyone's name in the book. Oh yeah. In well, the, on each brick. As, long as, as long as my name's in the first brick, I'm okay. You want I'm first put, brick? I'm, I'm going to put something on it. You tell first me how brick. much to put on it. Right. What I'm looking forward to is when Mama finds Eric's name is ahead of her. Hey, see, Eric, Eric don't Eric don't want that smoke, so he goes. Hey, listen, I'm gonna say, Mama, I put some on it. I'm, 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 I'm she sorry. gonna I, say she put me here. <laughs> she she like you want to trade spaces? I'll give you the money back. Carry him for nine months, ten pounds, all on you. I was like, Nah, I'm good, Mama. Yeah, I'm good. You. I tell you what, next time, next birthday, I promise that I, I the money I invested in the comic book, I'll put double on your money. Back. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Identity Group. And I know what you're thinking, right? <laughs> Me and Eric been a lot more vocal. We've been a lot more, you know, proactive in putting this content out for you. That's a sign of love and commitment right there. So if you're watching this right now, all we need is a like, share, subscribe, and, you know, a plethora of other things, a million dollars, but we're not going to be greedy right now. <laughs> we're going to be proactive and use this yeah. time wisely because we have Hannibal back in the booth. And if you saw the first episode, the first tandem episode of 2021 of our whole entire career you know that hannibal is an illustrious author for comic books and he has a plethora of things he can go down through all the information in the description below but hannibal welcome back to the show thank you for joining us and as always we have hero you know your host and then our awesome et facts the co-host the man with all the knowledge that you need when it comes to books because he carries a constitution with him at all goddamn time you hear me don't you dare challenge him don't you dare ask him any questions. <laughs> he'll put it on blast <laughs> how you doing eric I'm good, man. I'm good. It's, I'm ready for lunch already. I'm going to lie to you. I'm hungry. Oh, man. Okay. Man. We're not even going to the next topic. <laughs> Hannibal, tell us. How you doing, man? We appreciate you coming back for another show. Uh, we appreciate the gems that you dropped in the first show. If you haven't watched that, please go check it out. But Hannibal, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very appreciative to be here. And I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking up for that uh, uh, emollient clause uh, in, in the Constitution. I'm going to need you to holler at some facts. I need to break that down a little bit. My, my okay. sister's a, a lawyer. So she's like, no, you don't know about your clauses. I'm like, I don't. <laughs> and you know what? I tell, I tell people all the time, lawyers just, just want to argue. And I feel oh, every oh, every single ex-girlfriend I had, I always tell them, you could have been a lawyer. Instead of sitting here <laughs> breaking my heart, you could have been making money for the courts. But that's just me <laughs> and my vendetta. <laughs> I won't bring this out of the podcast. But what we are going to do on the podcast today is we're going to take it. We're going to take a social and a little bit of a political stance here. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about what social structures we understand as black men and the structure that we're all familiar with hopefully by now in 2021 and for what reasons is really important is black lives matter uh regardless of how you feel because i know youtube is immediately demonetized this regardless of how you feel regardless of what you think uh you know about black lives matter uh here sits three black men who have three extremely different experiences when it comes to living as black people uh we don't sit here and pretend that we know it all, and we don't expect you to sit there and judge us like we know it all. But our experiences are our own, so we ask that you at least respect that. And the people who 
want to share that in the comment section below. Uh, our goal here is to identify with each other. So, you know, be kind mm-hmm. to each other in those comment sections. But before we get into <laughs> the questions, <laughs> before we get into the questions, um, I just want to, actually, I'm going to cut that out because uh, we are ready for the questions. Eric, lead with the question. Eric, give us a question <laughs> that you that you want to cover, something about uh, this social uh, dynamic that's going on right now. All right. So if you haven't watched the first episode, a little bit about uh, Hannibal's background is he has been involved um, and I will let him go into his involvement with uh, the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter. And that's important very much because of what's going on in our country today when it comes to equity and equality. So one of the things that here on I wanted to ask you is why is Black Lives Matter becoming so significant outside of police brutality and inequity and in, in injustice, just as a, a movement as a whole? Well, uh, it's interesting to me uh, as a student of history when I look at this, because I think back knowing that Marcus Garvey started the Black Star Line and did what he was doing. And then 30 years after that, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And then 30 years after that, we had Public Enemy and Al Sharpton and other things. And now 30 years after that, we have Black Lives Matter. Every 30 years, like mm-hmm. clockwork, this nation has a racial reckoning. It happens. Um, sometimes it's larger, sometimes it's smaller. I thought the 90s one was honestly a little on the small side, personally, yeah. despite Latasha Harlan, despite a lot of things that were happening in that regard. But the difference now is uh, two things. First of all, what I call the democratization of media, that a person standing on the corner with a smartphone can get as much uh, into people's minds as somebody on NBC News, if, mm-hmm. they, if they freak it right. Yes. Uh, that democratization of information has changed the way that information comes to us. Yes. And second, the clarity of brand that short of Marcus Garvey, who was really, really good with it, there yeah. has not been a way to summarize and encapsulate the thought in a way that is both clear and easily communicated. Black lives matter is a simple statement mm-hmm. and people who come again like for example the people the all lives matter crowd or the blue lives matter crowd immediately it says if i'm if i'm saying that my house is on fire don't tell me all houses are on fire we need to put <laughs> out my house yeah so yeah. it immediately shows an a desire to invalidate the suffering of people when they come at that that's it's it, that kind of branding from a marketing and, and an advertising standpoint is a million dollar brand. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and being able to democratize and proliferate that message the way that we now are has changed the way that it is perceived. That's why, you know, if you look at the calendar, we're going a little bit longer than Marcus Garvey went. You know, mm-hmm. we're catching up with what the Panthers did in, in terms of that, that, that kind of a time frame. Um, so this moment, this moment becomes a movement, as the women of Black, who started Black Lives Matter themselves say. Um, and that has galvanized people in a way that forces even, you know, uh, Kamala Harris had the answer to the daughter of Malina Abdullah at a, at a, a, a campaign event that, you know, uh, Joe Biden has to address it in stump speeches. This is this is something that is uh, affected the politics in a larger sense because we're able to mobilize mm-hmm. more people. More people are on the ground saying this is wrong. This has to stop mm-hmm. and something has that when you see, you know, WNBA players and white people wearing Breonna Taylor T-shirts, that's all because of 
the importance of marketing encapsulate this thing. Brianna was asleep. She was innocent. She did not need to die. And yet state sanctioned violence says you're dead and we will face no consequences. In a nation of, oh, we're the good guys and rights and wrong, that message, that message don't fly no more. You can't, you can't propaganda your way out of that with Dick, a Dick Wolf Law and Order episode. It's not going to work. <laughs> we ain't seen too many episodes of SVU. We know the secrets now. Y'all ain't fucked oh, up. Yeah. Exactly. Um, no. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying what you said, I think, is, is speaks to um, several points. The first one is I, I would like to know what your thoughts are about, you know, I guess what we, we consider them allies, you know, non-black people joining into the struggle um a part of me and maybe this is in complete ignorance so i'll ask you do you from you being a student of history have you seen or do you think or feel that these movements have been hijacked by liberal whites do you do you feel that that's something that they do or do or, or do you feel like maybe back then versus now it's a bit more genuine i really would like to know your perspective there have been elements outside of our community that have sought to co-opt our work in yes. everything that we have done. Yes. There have been elements inside of our community mm-hmm. that have sought to co-opt our work mm-hmm. no matter at what point. These are unfortunate realities. Okay. Um, any conflict will have an adversary. Yes. Um, it is what it is in that regard. But, you know, when I think of allies, when I think of people who uh, uh, were not in a struggle, but adopted a struggle and were important to a struggle. I think of John Brown, you know, mm-hmm. I think of, uh, uh, who, who literally you know, raised up a rebellion against mm-hmm. slavery. I think of yeah. Jane Fonda, who funded the Black Panther Party, who was willing to go to jail for her beliefs, mm-hmm. who was willing to sacrifice elements of her career and would not shut up. Mm-hmm. Still uh, I think about things yeah. like that. And I see the possibility of allies. But as Martin Luther King said, the danger is more in well-meaning whites who value order more than justice. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a perfect answer. Zero. Uh, um, the thing that I always like to get a perspective on is when you became the communications director for Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles, what was the origins of that? And like sort of how did it feel to be sort of the because when you say communication director, you are literally the 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 brunt the of it. Piece. Like you are going to get the calls, you are going to get the emails, you're going to get the discrepancies, the news posts. The you're going to have to come back and and argue down conspiracy theories. Like you have to be on your toes about this. So just what was your origins and how how did how did how was it? Because you carried the weight. So how do your shoulders feel, man? Well. To clarify, I was co-head of the communications team alongside uh, 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 Melina Abdullah, who was the uh, 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 one of the main organizers there. I did a lot of that work. I especially worked in the digital realm because the websites are, again, my thing. Uh, so that was one of the areas of focus for me. Uh, how it started? Uh, well, for example, in 2013, uh, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi started Black Lives Matter. In 2009, Patrice Cullors danced in my wedding. Wow. So our relationship goes back a long time. You know, uh, we are we are you know we've been we've been in each other's presence a lot. We know a lot about the vibe there. So uh, my wife was in Black Lives Matter before I was, and she brought me into it. Uh, and they recognized the skill set that I had. I was asked to serve in certain ways. I was happy to serve, and I worked at doing that. Um, what 
I normally believe coming from an advertising and marketing background is that I don't need to argue against wrong facts. I need to proliferate the right message. Mm. So I would much rather drown somebody out with the messages I want people to hear than to sit and nitpick every article of, of why somebody's wrong in their criticism of me. Mm. Um, one of my favorite lines uh, when I deal with a, a lot of stuff like that is from uh, Big Sean. I can't hear you from the other side of the TV. I know you're over there. I see you doing this, but I can't hear you because I'm over here. So uh, (laughs) as for how my shoulders feel, you know, uh, like I said, my mother was a Black Panther. You know, I've done this work since the 90s. Uh, I was in a mentoring program at Nickerson Gardens, a housing project in Los Angeles. I was in an African-centered rights of passage organization. My kids are coming up in this now. Uh, It's a generational struggle, Uh, you know. Yeah, to, to Star Wars, you know, you don't just get to be Leia as a teenager fighting against the Empire. You also have to be Leia as a senior citizen fighting against the First Order. It's a generational struggle. It will continue to be a generational struggle because it's bigger than me. It's bigger than people. It's, it's a movement that has to, that happened over time to us. So it has to be dismantled over time by us. Mm-hmm. Wow. So the the way that okay, this is like using your your mother's experience and the way that the Panthers organized. I'm a I'm a huge student of uh, Black Panther history. I am a big Fred Hampton, Huey Pete Newton fan. Uh, Fred Hampton's story is one of the 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 most aggravating stories that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And every time I see it, it makes my blood boil. Even the dismantling of the party just makes my blood boil the things that were allowed to happen in our communities i mean again and it's like you said it's a 30-year struggle from the 60s to the 90s they've literally allowed certain organizations to pump drugs into our community to destroy the movement if if they numb us with the medicine then we won't go out and advocate for ourselves and i and i Mm -hmm. see a more clandestine approach to oppression but can you can you kind of sh- maybe share some of your mother's uh, stories, maybe some things you remember as far as organizing then versus how we do it today? That's actually a fun story because I, my I came home from college my sophomore year and I was super black, walking stick, X Clan verb stick black, and I was like, Rrr. and in passing, my mom mentioned something about uh, uh, Fred Hampton. I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, oh, yeah, I was, in, I, was in, I was in the Panther Party in Chicago. I'm like, why would you not tell me that? <laughs> with everything that I'm going through, trying to reinvent the, why would you not tell me? What is wrong with you? And she said, and I quote, I didn't need to give you a reason to hate white people. They were going to do it for me. Wow. So, um, and it really hit me at the time. I was like, okay, wow, okay. So I see where you're coming from. The story that she does tell is the night that Fred died, that... <clears throat> She was, uh, she was in the Panthers because she was dating this dude uh, who was called Shababa. And uh, they were told that something really important was happening in Joliet and that they had to mobilize and get a whole bunch of Panthers out to Joliet real fast. Mm-hmm. So she hops in the car with Shababa and them, and they roll out to Joliet, and they got there. And there's a moment when they're all standing around and there's nothing there that they were told was going to be there. And there's a moment when they all stop and they think, oh, no. And they rushed back to Chicago as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was far, far too late. And that sort of thing, uh, that sort of story reminded me of a lot of things. It's one of the reasons why I work in communications, because had they had 
a better communications action. If there was somebody that they could have been like, yo, are you on the ground in Joliet? Can you verify these results? Mm. If when they got to Joliet, they had, were able to reach back to somebody, yo, can you get eyes on the chairman? And so on and so forth. If they had a better infrastructure, um, maybe they wouldn't have been so vulnerable to this. But we're forgetting, Fred, I don't even think Fred was 22. I think he was like 21 years old. You know, these were young people yep. who had never done anything like this. Yeah. And they were doing amazing work on just willpower alone. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to take anything from their accomplishments first. No, definitely but not. And, I recognize yeah. that with, with better support, if the people from, uh, if the people from the nation, if the people from the Black Star Line and be like, yo, yo let me tell you this. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you how about, they're about to holler at you like this. We wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel every 30 years. We wouldn't have to keep doing this every 30 years. Wow. I think it's pretty, like, astound. Like, a big reason why me and Eric started this is because, one, we never we don't see too many people that look like us even talking about this. And, two, uh, it, there was a certain level of aggravation I got when uh, – and, granted, they were telling our stories, but they weren't people who looked like us. So they would use words like, you know, uh, the young, the young African American. No, this brother got shot. Not this young African. This brother got mm-hmm. shot. Like just the their way of talking about us didn't roll off the tongue well. So me and Eric decided, and we've been on the platform now for what four years, going on five. We've almost beat the mm-hmm. Confederacy, and <laughs> a big part of it. <laughs> Wait, wait. Status update dead. I'm just dead now. (laughs) And a big part of it for us is this is like a this is like our way of chronological history, because the Black Panther is being uh, those stories are being told now on the silver screen. But the underground has are going to the Hollywood to hear our stories. If you're going to Hollywood to hear our stories, you're not hearing our stories. No. But right now, right here, this right here will be forever immortalized on the internet and will be able to be passed on so that when this eclipse happens again, maybe we can cut that half-life in half. And if we could just cut it in half and make it a 15-year rotation, it just mm. applies more pressure. So I think it's amazing how you say like that level of communication. Like if only six people watch this today, but a hundred thousand watch this in ten years, we had done something. You know, yeah. it we've accomplished something that we probably didn't know we were even building up to do. So the, the you know, as men in their thirties, we we like to think that you know the time we take away from our career life to put time into this is well spent. Like me and Eric have no qualms about that. So then I guess. A, a, another question that you know me and Eric have like constant transition because this wasn't really on our radar for like the first year and it wasn't until we ran into Ben Dixon uh Benjamin Dixon Mondale Robinson and Marcus Hill, uh that we started thinking about this out loud like you know we thought about the Japanese internment camps and how they got paid and how the Irish came and they were uh, they got paid the Italians were discriminated against so they got paid Reparations has become something that we have put at the top of our list. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Jimmy Dore. We recently got a bunch of hate from uh, his fans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on our, one of our YouTube, our YouTube, because we literally said Jimmy Dore isn't really about that whole movement. Because if you really wanted to force a vote on uh, Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid and all that stuff, free health care, we die from that every year. 
at the same at a disproportional rate. So giving us free health care isn't going to solve our problem. Let's uh, put reparations on the bill. And people lost their mind. Me and Eric have never got so much hate on a video ever. And we love it. Hey, yeah, we yeah, love you fantastic. guys. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> we love you guys. So the the movement for reparations, was that a big talking point uh, in your time and of doing this? And should Black Lives Matter put their focus into talking about getting Black people reparations versus, because you can it stands to reason the average human being doesn't uh, un- understands Black Lives Matter as a principle, but what is their goal? Should the goal of Black Lives Matter be transitioned to getting reparations? Well, Black Lives Matter was always focused on the end of state-sanctioned violence towards Black people. That was always the goal. Um, uh, in that goal, there are subsidiary goals. There are things that are, are helpful to that. For example, they worked very hard to uh, help make ethnic studies a requirement at Cal State University because that was something that the Panthers fought for. We recognize that if you can affect people's education, you can affect people's behavior. Yes. Um, and so there are subsidiary goals, but the larger overarching goal has always been the end of state-sanctioned violence towards black people. Um, would reparations play a part in that? Possibly. Uh, is it big enough to be a network-wide campaign? I don't know. I'm not in the leadership that way. So, uh, but what I do, what I do believe is that it is an issue that reparations has been bubbling under things, like I said, through all these movements, ever since the Freedmen's Bureau and the idea of 40 Acres of Mule first mm-hmm. popped up uh, in uh, Reconstruction. But um, it really bubbled up now because uh, of the economic disparities that people are seeing, where people are fighting to get a $15 an hour minimum wage. And Jeff Bezos is making $4,000 a second. Uh, and people are looking at the, these vast economic disparities. Historically, when you look at the French Revolution, when you look at the Russian Revolution, when the disparities started to get so graphically, scarily huge, people were like, let's do some stuff. Yeah. Let's roll on it. Yeah. Uh, and that has been a historical constant in this regard. Um, reparations is a means but figuring out the, the here's, here's here's the problem uh lawmakers are reluctant to say i'm going to just give black folk a check because then you know white folk are like where my check i you know i've i've suffered blah blah so for me i came up with i, I came up with what I, what I thought was the simplest thing black folk don't pay taxes mm, not sales that's taxes, actually not property taxes not corporate taxes think about that for a minute so if wow. a black-owned business doesn't pay taxes, look at the difference in the way they have to deal with things than a white-owned business. And all of a sudden, you're going to see a whole lot more black CEOs. Mm-hmm. A whole lot more black CEOs going to do different hiring. Whole, different hiring is going to change the way companies work. Mm-hmm. I get a, divor- a diversity training in my company that says more diver- companies that are more diverse in uh, ethnic and, and other makeups are more flexible. They have better solutions. They are more profitable. Yes, uh, but that doesn't change the way people's behavior works. That people can say, "I see these numbers, but I'm still gonna call the dude I worked with, the white guy that I worked with, the people I know," mm-hmm. and that's that's an unfortunate tribal reality of human psychology. When it is, however, when it is, however, an economic incentive, when you like, okay, hold up, our company is gonna pay how much in taxes if we got a white owner, and how much less in taxes if we got a black owner? That's we can put him there literally just for the front. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but what I'm saying, 
if you put him there with the front with the salary, then exactly. he's gonna have to make certain moves. He's exactly. gonna have to make do certain things. It's gonna have to look a certain way. Yeah. Because you know uh, most black CEOs, I, I remember there was one at Kaiser Permanente. They're not gonna roll up in there and not be black. Dude had. I used to work at Kaiser Permanente, and the CEO did this whole thing where he went to a fancy dinner and talked about he was thinking about stealing the silverware. I'm like, dude, you're a CEO. What are you doing? Nah, man. Nah, 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 man. man. Nah. The tip, the tip you leave is worth the silverware. That it's really hard to find a good steak knife. I'm just saying. Like, do you know how hard it is to find a good steak knife? And when you see one, if you leave a decent tip, I don't think that. Yeah, okay. No, let me not incriminate myself. Because yeah, I, oh, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, you told a little bit more of your business than I really wanted to know there. But <laughs> but overall, uh, uh, the concept of reparations is is. Well, first of all, if you get to the actual number based on any realistic economic, it would bankrupt the nation, yes. bankrupt the nation Thank like you. that. Thank so you. that's not a feasible thing. Well, I'm, people are not going to be like, let me just kill myself to save you. People are not going to do that. They're self-preserved. Mm-hmm. But if you look forward, if you look forward and say, OK, black folk don't pay no taxes. Have you seen how we spend? Do you have any idea how we spend? Mm-hmm. We, we're about to do this. Yeah, yeah, they're gonna that get it. They're gonna get it back. Everything, absolutely. Yeah. But for for but for those of us who are prudent and 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 business savvy, we could take that that extra money that we pay in taxes, and we could parlay that into advancing our business, expanding our empire, which in in turn would give us the economic ability to hire more people that look like us and get le- uh, less uh, uh get more of our people out of poverty. The average black man in this exactly. country makes $42,000 a year and the white counterpart makes up roughly $10,000 more a year than that. When I start having a bigger company can afford to pay my black men and women more, then I, I, I quickly can close the gap. Quickly. Exactly. Exactly. You remember how I complimented your, your studio set up there, Eric? Yes. Think about how fly it would be if you had 33% more money in your pocket. Oh. Think about how fly it would be. Oh, I already know. I already know. It, yeah, man, you get my wheels spinning. See, this is a better concept because Hero and I have talked about the reparations thing. And to your point, what I told Hero, I said, it sounds great. I said, but there we have two problems. And Hero tells me the government has money, but I know we're already running a huge deficit. I said, to your point, it would bankrupt the country. I said, but again, until we can change the mentality of the majority of black people to not think, oh, I got the bag I can go spend on Gucci and uh, Yves Saint Laurent or Givenchy, whatever it is that they want to go spend it on or go go put or TJ Maxx, TJ Maxx, put thirty put thirty thirty inch rims on a two thousand dollar car, whatever that is, like that that's the worst. We need to be to your point a lot more strategic about that, and I think that would be easier to get a reprieve, even if you didn't get it on a permanent basis. Let's say from age eighteen to forty. You didn't have to pay any taxes on earned income if you're black in this country. What incentive would that give you? What kind of fire would that light under your rear end to get out here and to 10x your money every year? Somebody like well, me. Not just, not just earned income. Let's say that you didn't have to pay uh, sales tax. So when you buy a car, you pay sticker price, player. You roll out on, on yeah. sticker price. Yeah. When you buy a house, mm-hmm. you pay sticker price. Oh, you don't right. pay property taxes on that house. That's money that you keep. Oh. See, in, see, but that means me. I get out when I'm turned 18, 
uh, 20 years old, I'm going to go buy a house and pay it off before I turn 40, whatever the, the age cutoff it's was. It's kind of crazy because I talk about, uh, I'm, 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 I recently started my venture into real estate and uh, I'm getting my license and everyone, and there's a, there's a black mogul out there who's like, uh, when you get your license, don't go to the bankers, come to me. And I was just like, with all due respect, sir, I don't know who you are and why you reach out to the world. So, like, you know, you you made this sound like a mafia scene. Like, I was just really uncomfortable <laughs> with the whole conference. I was like, with all due respect, sir. And, yeah. you know, he was, like, he was like, I'm only one. You are like me, but just 30 years younger. And there's only 3% of the black, of the total uh, Chicago population, and only 3% of the realtors are black. And he says, even less than that have hair like yours and are okay with going to the hood. And I was like, and I was like, I'm missing your point. He's like, basically, there's a bunch of property out there that Karen is too afraid to go look at that you feel yep. comfortable with. And it, and that concept didn't even hit me. He was a multimillionaire who made money off of Section A. He's like, you look at Section A people as less than. I look at people who have fallen in the hard times that get 80% subsidized payment, which is an 80% guaranteed check. And if they flub, the government owes you instead of you owing them. Mm-hmm. Tell me how that's not profitable. And I was just like, Oh, you on some other stuff? He was like, "Yeah." And then I looked him up and realized that, oh, yeah, he is the top leading black uh, real estate agent in Chicago. And yeah, you know, maybe I should do some more research before going to all, any of these hangouts. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. And I think you know this is a, a good you know place to segue into our last question. You know, this what we're talking about. All these ideas have to do with the the way that the system is currently set up versus people taking accountability. How do, how do we, um, how do we deal with systemic racism as an overarching issue in the country and balance it with personal accountability? How do those two things, you know, exist in the same vacuum? I'm going to come at this a little bit sideways. I'm going to tell a story uh, based on something I saw. There's a, I, I, as uh, we talked about comics before, I'm a big comic book person. And there's a comic book story recently that was put out in the Transformers books by a writer named uh, Magrid Scott. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. She's super nice. And she talked about this character, Starscream, that he had been forged. He had been put, his, his, his soul was put into a war machine because they were in a war and they needed warriors. Mm-hmm. And she says, but this isn't what you were supposed to be. Mm. They put you in this war machine. They made you this warrior and you excelled, you fought, you became excellent at it, but you were supposed to be an explorer. You were supposed to fly. You were supposed to discover. And she showed him a picture of what he was supposed to have been. And he couldn't, he, he couldn't deal with it. He couldn't deal with who he had, who he was based upon that. Mm. So there is a responsibility for each of us. And again, I'm a real Booker T person in this way, even acknowledging some of his limitations. Uh, that I have a responsibility for my life. I have to work as hard as I can and do whatever I can to make things right for me, to make things right for my family. Mm -hmm. I do this recognizing that I'm going uphill all the time. Mm -hmm. I always know I'm going uphill. I can see the difference in the grade. I went to USC so I could see the flat and sometimes downhill that some of my white classmates were. I could see it. I can't get to it, but I can see it. And that's why I recommended uh, uh, this tax idea as reparation instead of cash because they never got a lump sum of cash. They got an advantage. Mm. If, you're a Dungeon and Dro- if you're a Dungeon and Dragons player, you know that when you roll with advantage, you don't roll with one dice, you roll with two. You get two chances mm. 
to get something right instead of one. You get an extra set of grace mm. that black folk normally don't have the luxury of having. Wow. So um, I look at my personal responsibility as the things that I can do within this going uphill. Mm. I don't know what I would have been like had I not had to go uphill. I don't know how much farther I would be. Mm. And I can't know because I'm still stuck on this hill. Mm. With that in mind, um, each one of us, uh, like I said earlier, I said another time, the diamond of your knowledge is the circumference of your activity, which is a RASCAS line. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't recognize, especially people that I grew up with, they don't see the, the flat land. They don't see the downhill slope. Mm-hmm. They think that they're on flat land. This is all that they've ever known. This is oh. what flat looks like to them. Mm-hmm. So they don't feel a greater responsibility to push harder because they're like, why? I'm on flat land. Why should I? Why don't I just get by? Why don't I just figure things out? So the structure has also worked to tell them that. The structure has, you know, oh, black history starts with slavery. Really? Are you sure? Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, black, folk did, black folk didn't do anything. Really? Because y'all wouldn't have stoplights. And Dr. Mark Dean literally made it possible for all of us to have computers and cell phones and all that. You know, so let's let's check let's check the numbers here. I always like to honor Dr. Mark Dean because he's a living black nerd who made all this possible. But <laughs> um, the, the line between personal responsibility starts with each one of us because each one of us is going to go into a box or a can of ashes and by ourselves. Nobody else is coming with us. And what we do before that happens is on us. Mm-hmm. Is the story that they'll tell about us. That said with this generational struggle, Princess Leia didn't stop when she blew up one Death Star. She didn't stop when she blew up two Death Star. She didn't stop when her, when the third planet killing thing was killed. She didn't stop. She, she was like, this is a struggle that has to keep going as long as I'm going. My kids recognize that. My mom recognized that. And as we continue to move through this history, we all have to recognize part of that responsibility is what I call paying the black tax. I will drive across Los Angeles to go to Simply Wholesome instead of going to the white place next door to my house yep. because it's my responsibility to make sure there are black owned businesses in my community. Yes. That's, yes. My, that's on me. So if I want black superheroes, I better go buy some freaking black comic books. And while I love the blue Marvel that my friend Kevin Grievous made, I better make sure I get some One Nation. I better make sure I get this non aware spike. I better make sure I get uh, uh, willpower. I better make sure I get books that represent me and are for me by people who look like me. Mm. Man. <laughs> wow. So much to think about. I know. I know. <laughs> My mind is running right now. Like, and it's I running think, uphill. It, it is running <laughs> uphill. No, but I think this analogy is, is really powerful because I never was able to articulate how I felt. And I think you just... Yeah, so put it so eloquent, eloquently, I, I literally feel this way every day. I get up and I know, and is, and I and I remember you know hearing as a kid, you know you have to work ten times as hard. And then I woke up one day, I said, I don't have to work ten times harder. I just have to be better than them. And you know what I realized? That's not that difficult. They're not. <laughs> they really aren't. They're not. So if I'm better. And I endeavor to be a better version of myself every day. My running uphill is going to be faster than they're running on flat, flat ground. And the, the ultimate thing is they're running on flat ground, but I'm on a hill. So I have the vantage point because 
in order for them to see me, they have to look up. In order for me to see them, I just have to keep running and look down. And if I'm running at a faster pace than them, I'm going to be more successful. I've had, you know, I've had white, white people tell me that I'm oppressed and, you know, that I can't do this and that. And I had to look at them and tell them, I said, oppression starts here. I said, I'm old. I'm younger than you. I've advanced in my career faster than you without uh, without the equal credentials. And they resent me for that. They don't know how yeah. I got there. And I was like, because I quietly outworked you. That's the thing that I have over you is that while you started with an advantage out of the womb, I had to develop a mindset and a skill set to get me farther, faster than you. And again, this is, a I feel like a bigger part of the problem um, systemically. This is, I feel like this is one of the, the legs of the issue is like when black people enter a space, it is inevitable that we, that we dominate the space. I mean, I remember as a kid watching Tiger Woods come up. No one had ever seen a uh, no one had ever seen a black golfer that dominant. Now we've we'd seen a black golfer in the '80s who won uh, a couple majors, but we'd never seen a young kid, eight, 17, 18 years old, it just come in and destroy the field. And he had so much love from certain people and 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 a bunch of quiet hate. And when that when he when he fell, he fell so hard, and you could see just the the smirks on these people face the satisfaction of seeing him actually be a human being for one minute and then mm-hmm. watching his ascendance again like he's had to overcome so much and i feel like that story is so relatable to what you what you said and to to me personally and i know also the hero like if you want to speak to that hero no i'll definitely speak on it uh you know as a person that <laughs> got a lot of my credentials i always tell people like at the age of 22, I had already lived a life that most people had spent their whole time trying to do, whether it was because of my athletic accolades in the NFL or, you know, just the fact that I was six months away from getting my master's degree. Like so much had happened for me. And a lot of people always ask me, like, you know, what, where, where do you go from here? And I always tell people, like, you know, when I go to these interviews, I kind of blatantly look them in the face and be like, you do realize that I don't have to be here, right? Like I am literally here saving lives because like it intrigues me for the moment like helping people intrigues me for the moment and that if i ever realize that oh i can make six figures at a cubicle okay once i figure that out you know i'm gone right like it's just a it's just a, a, i enjoy helping people that much and uh the ability and everyone asks so what does your masters do for me now i say it gives me the ability to say fuck off it's just that easy there's a hospital in every state there's two hospitals for every county, if you really want to be honest. So that's just what my education is giving me. Uh, Eric would tell you, most people know, I'm very brash. I don't care about, you know, how I'm perceived. I I long ago stopped apologizing for making people uncomfortable. Like me being black isn't going to change. I've been me for 32 years. And that whole pick them up speech, like, no, man, don't worry. Like, you just got to smile more. Well, you paying me for that because it's not part of my contract. Like it, it, I give, <laughs> I give people, you know, that, that resilience and that attitude, not from a place of disdain and the people who truly understand me, they vibe with it, but mm-hmm. I, I'm in no way, shape or form uh, ever going to apologize. that. And I think it's super amazing to hear how your, how you perceived your struggle and turned it into an ethic, uh, a work yeah. ethic that drives you. And that was something that was like, like, 
uh, mind folding because it's no longer struggle because for every piece of training just makes you better. And there's no such thing as, you know, not getting better when you're actively pushing towards that. So once again, Hannibal, I mean, oh, go ahead. Before I did, I did want to, uh, what we, what the three of us have done is unique and factually it is statistically unusual. Mm. Uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that um, many people when faced with overwhelming odds, they give up. Yes. They're broken by it. Statistically speaking, that happens to most people. So, you know, um, I was raised by my great uncle and my great aunt. My great uncle mined coal. He was a chauffeur. He, you know, he, he, he lived through ridiculous amounts of uh, uh, discrimination, the like that we will never physically see. Yeah. You know, because the system was so much more aggressive back then. Now it's more insidious. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have done, and this is where I, I'm very careful about talking about personal responsibility, that um, while we have the three of us have excelled. The three of us have worked. The three of us have seen this uphill thing and said, I got you. Many people that we cannot blame for it saw that and fell back. Yeah. We can't blame them for falling back because it was unfair to them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, uh, when Eric talked about the people who uh, they, they, they talked about how he was oppressed and yada, yada, that's because it's easy for them to see what you could have been. It's mm-hmm. easy for them to see because they see all kind of people oh, who could be yeah. all kind of ridiculous. That's things. A, that's there was really a dude who walked yeah. in. Perfect example. There was two people, two sets of people, the dudes who did Game of Thrones and the dude who did that show Dave, who walked into HBO and had no idea what they were doing and were completely unqualified for the job and walked out with TV shows. Wow. If we had a fifth of the confidence of a mediocre white dude who doesn't know what he's doing, we would be insanely dangerous. And they know it. Yes. They are well aware of it. So when the three of us at our whatever percentage of us, the 10th or whatever they want to say, um, uh, excel and the rest fall back down that hill, that's a that's a feature. That's not a bug. That's intended that way. (laughs) Because even on flat ground, a lot of them fall down. A lot of them fall down on flat ground. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to be. Again, look at look at the concept of grace. Look at the concept of, you know, what is a way that uh, everybody doesn't have to hustle like, you know, out of their freaking mind because everybody's not built for it. Yeah. You know, my wife, for example, has uh, an autoimmune disease. That doesn't mean she doesn't want to hustle. She can't hustle. That doesn't mean she's not talented because she is. She can't apply her talent. She was a dance instructor for decades and now can't dance because her body won't let her. Mm. Oh, you're not working hard enough. Who's going to tell her she's not working hard enough? That kind of ableism is mm-hmm. unfair to a humongous swath of people. Yes. And we have to recognize our own privilege in this regard. And I'm very careful about it because even knowing that as a black man, I've experienced challenges in my life. I've been held at gunpoint by cops. I've been followed around malls, whatever. You know, I'm able-bodied. I can walk on two legs. Mm-hmm. I have most of my cognitive abilities. I can work and stand a day. I can lift things. There's a humongous and growing number of people who can't. Yeah. And the system is built to say, screw those people. Yes. That's yes. The, the system is built not only to set up this hill, but the people who are falling down it to keep pushing them, mm-hmm. to keep pushing them back. Yes. And the people who fall down on flat land, push them too. Mm. That's a problem. That's a problem. <laughs> wow. And that's the larger systemic problem that in our own personal responsibility, we have to look at, what am I going to just leave behind? 
Mm. What's this go? Am I, will I have just run up the hill or will have I have tried to knock that hill a little flatter for the person who comes behind me? Well, I've tried to say, wait a minute, no, you're knocking down people on flat ground. That's also not cool. A, a white teen, Black Lives Matter protested in uh, uh, honor of a white teenager that was shot by a cop who was, he had a, a learning disability. Mm -hmm. He couldn't understand what the cop was saying and the cop killed him. Mm. That's not fair. It's mm -hmm. not fair. Wow. And that's the system overall that we're looking to look at. Wow. Perfect. Man, well, we we are actually uh, been compiling data like crime statistics and police data um, to talk about, you know, police reformation, defunding, whatever label you want to put on it. But as soon as we finish that, we're going to send it to you before we release it, because I think it will be uh, we really will like your perspective on that, because, I mean, we're really, really passionate about it. And we know that <laughs> um, things have to change. But unfortunately we live in a world that people say well you know facts don't care about your feelings okay so we'll make sure that we literally compile the data in such a way to make the facts not care about your feelings so mm -hmm. when, you, when you have to when you have to eat this this sandwich you know it's not going to taste good for you but you're just going to have to take it and i think the grace message is is one of the best things because here and i have often going back and forth he always has to remind me he says eric most people aren't built like us they're just not you can't you can't punch down at them and it's not something that i inherently have ever thought about or on purpose you just have, yeah not on purpose really because high expectations for people which is perfectly I do, fine I, because i believe that the majority of black people are capable of more than they currently do and I, I'm part of it i know is education part of it is is uh situation circumstantial it's uh environment you know uh, uh nature versus nurture whatever you want to call it and i know that again black people can't become something they can't see so i have to be that and then go show them that they can become that you know just like hero does when he goes back to pine bluff and you know, mm -hmm. in the mentorship program, just saying, hey, I'm this, I do this, I make this, um, you can do it too, this is the path to get there. And then instead of watching them roll down the hill is making sure that I put up some stops to catch them on the way down and then say, mm -hmm. hey, rest and then get up and keep running. Yeah. I think I think that's where Hero and I are. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, we we really love that idea of like when me when I when I created the book club, it was so strange because this was just a bunch of dudes who were passionate about you know reading books but didn't have a platform for them. And I was like, I'll host your podcast for you. I will get up every morning, read your stupid books, whatever y'all want to <laughs> read. And, but you have the platform, and now people can see it. People see these men, these dark men, out here reading poetry out here reading fantasy out here reading the miseducation of the negro and being like damn they was talking about this in 1930 yeah bro <laughs> shakespeare ain't shit ain't he <laughs> like you know just getting people to realize that that's like the thing they want to put forward but you know i got a couple books i'm gonna send over to you i got i got some stuff for you <laughs> oh, wow. please please send it please send it oh yeah please send we, love, it. Um, we love books we we got i think we're 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 through the fourth book and like we've just been rolling i think we're taking on the behemoth that is uh obama's book this week Ooh, so like the memoir Ooh, 768 pages of the, the obama goodness I, and you know me i'm not a, i'm not I, I i like obama but i'm not a fan of obama <laughs> yeah. i like him but i'm not a fan of him. so i'm reading this book with Tik, and the first couple of pages he says the shit he says shit and i was like okay barry 
Talk to me there. Talk to me how you feel. <laughs> yeah. Barry ain't got to impress nobody. Barry ain't got to run for nothing no more. <laughs> Barry ain't got shit to worry about. But uh, we really do appreciate you coming on, uh, spending quality time and just, just, you know, from a person who lived in the generation that me and Eric read so much about and having, you know, the honor of having a mother part of the Panthers and just being able to share that piece of history that we can now take. And yeah. share that story because I don't think there's ever been a movie that talked about how there was a miscommunication on that level. And now me and Eric have that story to tell. February, Judas and the Black Messiah. Chairman uh, Chairman Fred's wife and son were very heavily involved with it. Thanks mm-hmm. to Ryan Coogler again. So yeah, February, Judas and the Black Messiah. You'll you'll see the story. Oh, perfect. Excellent. I'm excited. I'm about Excellent. to put that in my browser right now. Excellent. But for the most part. uh just real quick, run down your social media for us, Hannibal, where they can find you, any projects you want to plug, and uh, all that will be in the description below. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, and you can find me on social media using app sign Hannibal Taboo, H-A-N-N-I, B as in bounce, A-L, T as in tough, A, B as in bounce, U. Uh, that is on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook, the serial number, the USS flag toy that they sold in the <laughs> 80s, and everywhere that you want to be. Um, um, my review uh, I also have HannibalTaboo.com as the website free web comics on operative.net uh, reviews every week on bleedingcool.com Bleeding. weekly on the iHeartRadio podcast Nerdorama with Mo and Tawala that's Wednesday mornings um, I have the four books coming out which is War Medicine number one from uh, Wonderman Comics in February Noir is the new black anthology for Fair Square Comics in February uh, all black creators doing noir comics um I'm trying to remember everything so I don't screw up. Cyberfunk. Uh, thank you, Cyberfunk. Thank you. Black-owned publisher, MV Media, Cyberfunk. Uh, that is uh, out in February. All black creators doing prose, Cyberfunk stories. MPLS Sound in April, uh, co-written by Joe Illich on uh, Humanoids Publishing. And uh, I did the free web comics on Operative.net. I know I'm forgetting something, but it's been bothering me. Oh, that's that's <laughs> most of it. And if you follow the social media, it'll pop up. It'll pop up. Yeah. And don't worry, all of this will be in the description below of this episode and the first episode. So check that out. But uh, for the most part, Eric, where can they find us? Find us right here on Instagram and on uh, YouTube. We we live on YouTube. We got so many videos now. So. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button, turn the notification bell, set it to all so you get all the notifications when we drop a video and go live. Our Instagram is active. Our TikTok is also active. So all of those are at the Identity Booth and be expecting to see greatness from us in 2021. Uh, as Thank always, you for guys, having me, guys. No, no Hannibal, it's been so much. It's really been so you, you identified with us, so we appreciate it, man. Thank you so yeah. much. Like, uh, easily. Well, it's the first tandem episode, so we is don't this, have to, you, is, set the bar high as hell. <laughs> you set the bar high as hell. <laughs> like I was sitting here because uh, Eric, I don't know if you how if you know how I met Hannibal. It was uh, you told me on Clubhouse, right? Through Clubhouse, mm-hmm. and like that day, I went on, and um, so many people like just rushed our page, and I was just like, okay, time to do the interviewing process. I guess no one told me about this part, so I'm like, all right, cool. What's your what's your story, and what do you have? Well, I t- I'm a vegan mother. Okay, mm. congratulations. I think that's awesome. But we talk about Black social politics and uh, social issues. Well, I like vegan food. And I was like, once again, I completely hear you. Uh, not opposed to it, but uh, how could I make an hour episode out of this? Like, we're, we're, <laughs> And then they well, hit me with let the, me. Go ahead. 
I was going to say, this book ironically sits on my desk, Enemies of Clash of Races by Haki Matabuti, Chicago. Um, and uh, he has a line in there that says, every action of an oppressed people is political. So a vegan mother, a woman who's fighting against the meat-heavy uh, politics and marketing of this country, that is kind of political. That actually it does is. have a swing. To, it, I, my wife has been vegan for a number of years. I'd be, I'd be interested in seeing that. Yeah. What's the name of that book like, again? This is... Enemies, A Clash of Races by Haki Matabuti. I've had this since I was in college. This is one of the most like important books I've ever, I mean, it's, it's so good. <laughs> it's all, it's all, you can see like, I got all, it's all, the highlights all. It's all. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. I guess like uh, the scope of my imagination was too small. So like, I now have like, okay, well, well, tell me, how do you feel about food deserts? Okay, I can talk about food deserts and this, and like we roll when I roll with that. So like now it's just like trying to find content that's pertinent because like me and Eric have been like desperately trying to get our numbers up because we know that you just that once you get to a thousand subscribers, you get into a different algorithm set where you can be a little bit more. Uh, you don't have to be so niche down. Like me and Eric definitely have to talk more about stuff that we wouldn't necessarily talk about like we brought back sports we brought back uh karen uh karen moments where we just literally reviewed the karen of the week it's just oh, like we, we brought back so much stuff that you know me and Eric have to put extra effort into but like this is the this is this is the way this is what we chose like and uh this is the way so for me i was just like clubhouse was has been such a, a useful tool but like it's one of those things where it's gotten to the point now where I'm like, okay, like I get it. Okay. You're a clown and you're, you're, you feel like you're being oppressed because clowns got a bad rap in 2018 because they were showing up on creepy sides of the roads. I get that. But what does that have to do with black lives matter? Like, can you help me talk about how this has to relate to police shooting? Has any clown been shot by a folk? No. All right, man. I'm sorry. I can't help you. Like, <laughs> not by the cops. No, not by, not by cops. No, oh, some dude was standing on the dude's porch trying to get an Instagram video, and he got I'm shot. I'm just saying, Steve, I'm just saying, the Joker's been shot a lot of times. He just keeps getting up. So I, I mean, we uh, we won't keep you here, man. We can we can really shoot the breeze all day, but uh, seems like that's every night. Don't care who's wrong or right. I hope the end is like slow it down and we can catch the vibes.